Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Easter to you. Uh, our, our worship folks, a uh, major blessing in our lives. Uh, they've been working so hard this week and uh, have done just a great job leading us this morning in, in our gospel hope. <clears throat> At Lakeside, for this part of the year, we've been going through the gospel of John. And we kind of designed this series so that when Easter came, uh, we'd be like in the middle of John, John chapter 12. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. And it's kind of interesting that when you look at the Gospel of John, there's 21 chapters. But like the first half of John is about three years of Jesus' life. And the last half of the book of John is about one week in Jesus' life. The Passion Week, the final week. Everything that he said and did that final week, the whole last half of the book of John is just on those things. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to come back later on and we're going to talk about uh, the last half of, of the Gospel of John. But when I was designing this series, I thought chapter 12 would be a really good place for us to land on Easter. And I want you to think of John chapter 12 as kind of a composite picture of our world today. And by world, I don't mean our material world, our physical world. I mean the way relationships are, the way people are. In John chapter 12, we see a lot of the same dynamics that are taking hold that we have to deal with today. So uh, just to set some context here, in John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so in John 11:44, I mean, these are pretty amazing words. It says, the dead man came out. He was bound hand and foot with linen strips. I'm trying to visualize that. I'm just trying to get my mind around that. He'd already been prepared for burial. His body had already started decaying. He was in the ground four days. And he also uh, had his face wrapped with a cloth. And so Jesus said, Lazarus, come out of the grave. And he came out of the grave. And then he says to everybody, unwrap him and let him go. And so when they unwrapped his hands and his feet and his head, when they finally gave that final command, you know, let him go, little did they know the firestorm that was about to be unleashed. This event is a climatic event, and it changes everything, the configuration of everything, and the way everybody understands Jesus. And so a couple of different firestorms get unleashed. And one of those firestorms, I'll call it a firestorm of faith. That there's all these different people that are beginning to take notice of Jesus and trust him at differing levels. And I want to just give you a couple of examples. In John eleven forty five, 45, it says that many of the Jews who had come to see Mary and Martha saw what Jesus did with their brother Lazarus and they began to believe in him. If you saw a person come out of the grave after four days, if you saw somebody wreck a funeral like that, right, what kind of a response would you have? People were very stirred up in their faith. John 12, 9, there's a large crowd that has come now to see Jesus. When he did that miracle, he was just two miles away from Jerusalem and Bethsaida. It was very close to Jerusalem. And word spread very quick. And people came out, not only because of Jesus, but they wanted to see Lazarus. 
Uh, and so, you know, the one that had been raised from the dead, they wanted to see this spectacle for themselves, and you would too. You would make the trip, trust me, if something like that happened. You know, I was thinking about, like, when something happens that's never happened before. You know, like, for example, a person that has a surgery and has a face transplant. You want to go see that person, and, like, there's just something about that that sounds so amazing that that could even happen, right? But that's something that was within the realm of medicine and, and technology. A person being raised from the grave is not within the realm of any power or authority of, of any person, especially after four days, and there's decay that's set in. People wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see Lazarus. They wanted to, to see this thing and verify it for themselves and, and satisfy their curiosity, right? You might remember on Palm Sunday, which is traditionally celebrated in tradition, uh, Christian tradition last Sunday, we had the little kids with palm branches and they were waving them. But there was a group of people, a crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem and they were waving palm branches and Jesus was on a donkey and, and they received him as a king. And, and the crowd had all kinds of different ideas about who Jesus was. But one of the things that we're told about the crowd in John twelve seventeen is that they had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, when he raised him from the dead. And it says here that people just continued to testify. Now, if, if I say testify, that's a, a religiously loaded word, right? It's like testify, you know, you raise your hand, testify. There's some traditions where they say that. But what that means is everybody was talking. There was chatter going on. There was gossip. There was rumors. It's like all these different people had these little snippets and, and these different perspectives. And, and you can just imagine the frenzy of conversation that's just buzzing and getting stirred up around Jesus. In John 12, 9, that firestorm of faith and curiosity that people had, the Pharisees become so flabbergasted. And they say, you know, they lament, oh, look, like the whole world has gone out to Jesus. You know, the whole, the whole, we've lost the whole thing, right? You know, the, the, it's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, everybody's going out to this guy. Now, this probably doesn't mean a lot to us. And, we, and it's not something that, like, unless you kind of understand the context of, of Jewish history. But in John 12, 21, even the Greeks come to see Jesus. The Jews, they were the chosen people of Israel. They were the special ones, you know. God had sent Jesus to the Jews. But now you have non-Jews, you have Greeks. And there's a couple of Greek people that approach Philip. And they say to Philip at Bethsaida, they say, we have a request. And they said, sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. You remember back in John 10 when Jesus was talking about being a good shepherd? He's like, like I've got sheep in this pasture. Like, you know, I'm the God of Israel. I'm the good shepherd. God was the shepherd of his people, Israel. But I've got a pasture over here that you don't even know about. And it's the Greeks, and it's the non-Jewish people, and it's the Gentiles. And in the book of Acts, you know, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. But, but now they're starting to show up in Jerusalem and in Bethsaida. It's like the whole world is getting infected with this buzz around Jesus. And uh, so it's a pretty remarkable thing. And so it's kind of a composite picture, I would say, of today. There's always going to be a lot of buzz around Jesus. 
there's always going to be a lot of testimony and people being stirred up for a lot of different reasons about Jesus. Some good reasons, some bad reasons. But there's always going to be a frenzy. I was watching uh, a documentary on Hulu called The Jesus Music. Uh, one of our elders said, hey, you need to check that out. And it was kind of interesting. But it talks about the rise of the billion-dollar Christian music industry that's happened over the la- like since the 60s and 70s. And the whole Christian music revolution, you know, we used to only sing hymns in churches and only do liturgies, and no one do- dared wear, like, blue jeans on the stage, that kind of a thing, right? And so I'm, like, halfway there, okay? So anyway, but anyhow. Uh, but this billion-dollar music, and it started with disillusioned hippies who turned to Jesus, and when they turned to Jesus, they turned to Jesus in their bare feet and their blue jeans. And they showed up at churches, right, where there was people in suits and ties, and there was kind of this, this clash of cultures. And, uh, and they also had different kinds of music. And the big thing about the documentary was whether or not the music of the hippies and the beats and all the different stylistic things that they were doing with their music, whether that would be welcome where only hymns and organs and traditional things were sung. And, and there was this big worship war, this big clash over music that happened. And the hippies, they were known as the Jesus freaks. But that wasn't a term of endearment. That wasn't a compliment to say that they were freaks, right? These are the outsiders. These are the Greeks. These are the people that are outside the mainstream. And, and many of them were having spiritual experiences by doing LSD and all sorts of stuff. It's pretty crazy. But you can imagine the chief priests and the Pharisees seeing all these Jesus freaks getting stirred up and shouting in the streets and waving palm branches and announcing the coming of God's King Jesus and, and the sense in which they felt like they were totally out of control of their own people. That's John 12. And so there's always going to be kind of like a populist idea of Jesus. But the, the other thing that we're going to see, and we'll see it in John 12, is that at the same time you have this kind of populist faith firestorm, like everybody's talking about Jesus. You have this firestorm of hatred that gets unleashed. So in John eleven forty six, you know, some people are running to Jesus to explore faith. But there's a whole bunch of people that are going to the Pharisees and they're saying, hey, this is what's going on. What do you think about this? <laughs> you know, you're the religious authorities and, and what, what do you think? All the enemies of Jesus, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they convene the Sanhedrin and they convene to deal with one issue and one issue alone, and that is this. What are we going to do about this Jesus? What are we going to do since this man is doing so many signs? We got the blind guy over here. He was blind, but now he can see. Before that, we had the guy healed at the pool of Bethsaida. We had him feeding the 5,000. We had him walking on water. We've had all these different signs, the wedding at Cana, What are we going to do? If he keeps doing all these signs, everyone is going to believe in him. And what's going to happen is if people believe in Jesus, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our place and our nation. Now, understand the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people, they were so zealous and unmanageable that when you disrespected the Jewish religion, they were such an unmanageable, zealous 
hostile bunch that the Romans made provisions. They gave them privileges in their worship that they could have Sadducees and teachers of the law and, and they could have a certain way to administrate themselves, right? They could have certain privileges as long as they maintained order amongst themselves. And so these leaders are like, Jesus is a disruptor. And he's stirring up crowds and he's making everyone nervous, uh, the Romans, but also us. And if we don't deal with Jesus and silence him, we're going to lose our power, we're going to lose our authority. It wasn't about the facts of who Jesus really is. Is he the son of God or not? For them, it was just a political equation. We're going to lose our power and our privileges if we don't stop him. So in John 12, the high priest, excuse me, at the end of John 11, the high priest Caiaphas, he makes a prophetic declaration. And what he says means one thing to him, but it means a whole other thing in the bigger picture of things. What he says is, he says, you know, guys, it's probably to our advantage that Jesus should die for our whole nation than for our whole nation to perish because of Jesus. He's expendable. It's better that we stuff out his life and we as a nation continue on with the status quo with the Romans than for him to create a big firestorm and for all of us have to pay the price. But the deeper thing that's going on, of course, is that Jesus is going to die for the benefit of the nation, but not in the way that Caiaphas imagines. So from this point on in John 11, a firestorm of hatred is unleashed. They resolve that the best course of action isn't just to kill Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus. You know, we got to deal with the perpetrator here, but we got to clean up this trail of evidence, these signs and these people that are, you know, like we can't have a formerly dead man walking around with such a story. So they tell anybody that knows of Jesus or Lazarus, they say, tell us if you know where they are. And the word goes out, right? And in, at the end of John chapter 11, in the aftermath of, of, of Lazarus' resurrection, the question is, is, what do you think? The crowds are saying, like, do you, do you think, who do you think he is? And, and do you think he's going to show up at the Passover? Do you, you know, is, is there going to be this confrontation between this guy who may be the Christ, maybe the Messiah? Like, what's going to happen? So a firestorm of curiosity and interest, the populist movement of Jesus, right? Firestorm of hatred. You know, uh, what you see building is a stark contrast. You know, when they make TVs these days, they're trying to figure out how to get the blacks blacker than ever before. Because the blacker you can make a pixel, the darker you can make it, the more stark contrast the lighted pixels have, right? So that, that stark contrast is what makes that picture so intriguing. And what we have at the end of chapter 11 is the dark is getting darker and the light is getting brighter of Jesus. And that's a composite picture of what we have today, is the darks are getting darker. You know, uh, evil is getting more pronounced. Uh, and, and we're seeing the hostility and the hatred building. But at the same time, we see this firestorm of faith getting unleashed, that people are realizing that with every foundation of their life being shaken, they're turning to God and they're curious, is, is Jesus the Son of God? You know, is there hope, like real hope 
in Jesus? Can I really trust him? The crowd's kind of noncommittal, but Jesus definitely has their attention, you know? But the issue is, what are they going to do with Jesus? What's the crowd going to do with Jesus? So the third thing that gets unleashed in John chapter 12, and it's a thing that I'm really intrigued with, is there's kind of a firestorm of hope that gets unleashed. Where you can't remain undecided about Jesus. You can't be like the crowd or like the Jesus freaks, if you will, and having your own idea of Jesus and your own, like, coming to him on your terms. Like, you, you have the hatred and the hostility over But you can't sit on the fence. You know, there's this binary culture. There's, you know, the, the haters of Jesus. Like, you can't just be on the fence. You have to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. And not just like him, but are you going to, trust him in a profound way. And so the seeds of the kingdom, the seeds of hope get planted here in John chapter 12. So let me walk you through it. For a little while after Lazarus was raised, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to a small obscure village called Ephraim. And he just lays low for a couple days. And uh, but then of all places, where do you think Jesus shows up? He returns to Bethany where Lazarus had just been raised and where everybody is looking for him. And not only does he return to Bethany, but he goes to Mary and Martha's house, to the home of Lazarus. And either Jesus has some kind of a a, a suicidal ambition here or death wish, or he has some profound purpose and something powerful that he is showing He goes right back into the the midst of the hostility, into the into the you know ground zero, if you will, of this whole thing that's been. And he goes to their house, and and in John twelve it says, Martha was serving them. Every time they're in this house, the same thing happens. Martha's you know she's serving and she's like getting everything right, and Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. And Mary's always in the kind of this place of worship and, and always seen kind of like the bigger spiritual realities around Jesus. And so she takes a pound of perfume, okay, 0.12 gallons. She takes a pound of perfume, not ounces, right, dab, dab, but a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and she anoints Jesus' feet, and she wipes his feet with her own hair. And the house is just like, filled with the fragrance of perfume. I mean, it only takes a couple of ounces, right, for everybody to smell you. But a pound, I mean, it's like the whole building would smell, right? Not just the house, but the neighborhood. You would know. And so this is what she does. And and Judas says, what are you doing? You're wasting a valuable thing here. You could sell this and give it to the poor. And then Jesus says this in John 12. He says to Judas, leave her alone. She's kept this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, she just anointed his feet with perfume. She's kept it for the day of my burial. What does Jesus know? What's about to happen to him, right? And then he says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me This is loaded language, disturbing and perplexing. What did Jesus mean by the day of his burial? What did he mean by you'll not always have me? 
The very next thing Jesus says is in John 12, 23 through 24, he uses a metaphor. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, if it falls to the ground and dies, it produces much fruit. Something is about to happen to me that is going to profoundly change everything about this world. The Son of Man is about to be glorified. How is he going to be glorified? He's like a kernel of wheat that's alive and, and he's with you. But that kernel of wheat is going to die. And it's going to tragically, from all a human perspective at least, fall to the ground. But when it falls to the ground and it dies, something miraculous is going to happen. So we're well acquainted with this metaphor, aren't we? Every fall, plants of the field cast their fruit, whether it's wheat, whether it's a, a kernel of corn, whether it's an acorn from an oak tree, whether it's a seed from an apple, right, that falls out of a tree. And it goes from a living state, it dies, it falls to the ground, and from all appearances, all hope is lost. But when the fruit falls to the ground and dies, it actually comes alive. And that little seed grows and it multiplies new life far beyond itself. So Jesus is telling them, I'm about to die. I've been anointed with perfume, just like Lazarus was. The perfume to cover the decay, the smell of decay, it's supposed to be something more pleasing. I've been anointed for my burial. I'm about to be cast down to that ground and die. And yet, by my death, something miraculous, life is going to be multiplied. Though I die, yet shall I live. In the same way that though Lazarus died, yet he's now living. In John 10, Jesus taught very clearly about this. He said, I'm the good shepherd, and I can lay down my life of my own accord when it's in the interest of others. And I'm going to lay down my life. I'm the good shepherd. By this, you know, uh, the, the fact that I'm willing to die for you shows you that I'm not some hired hand. I am your shepherd. I would rather die that you may live. By my death, something life-giving is going to happen. A, a seed is going to germinate, and it's going to multiply, and it's going to be explosive, and there's going to be this, this firestorm of hope that springs up all around it. But I'm also the great shepherd because not only do I lay down my life, but I can do this great thing. I have the authority to take up my own life. And not only do I have the authority to take up my own life, but the Son of Man has authority to grant eternal life to whosoever believes in him. Whosoever. If you trust me, I will do for you, not just what I did for Lazarus, but what I have the authority to do for myself. You can experience that same life. That's hope. So here's the metaphor. When Jesus dies and is cast to the ground, he'll appear to have died, but he'll also become like, kind of like the first fruits of many who will rise to new life. John 11, Jesus is cementing a statement he makes in John 11, 25 through 26. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
can't sit on the fence about resurrection. You either believe that Jesus has the power to raise or you do not. He demonstrated it with Lazarus. But where it's really going to matter is when it comes down to your life. Do you believe that though you die, yet shall you live? That Jesus not only came from God, but has the ability to give you the gift of eternal life. Do you believe this? Jesus, are you saying that death no longer is our destiny? Are you saying that though I die, there's something on the other side of death? There's life on the other side of death? Jesus doesn't mince any words about hope. And I think we're at a place where we have to choose whether our hope is going to be truly found in Jesus. Does he really have this power and authority to grant us eternal life? When you have hope, you're able to live a life that is transformative, that's unlike what a life anyone else can live. And I'll give you an example. In John 12, verse 25. Jesus says, the one who loves this life will lose it. All of us love our life at some level. And we hang on for every moment. And and we try to make moments as, as pronounced as they can be. And we try to capture every moment because we feel like moments are fleeting. And, and that once these moments end, there's not going to be any more moments. So let's eat, drink, and be merry. And let, let's make the most of this life right now. And so we love this life. Those who love this life will lose it, but the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You have a different perspective when you have hope. That I don't have to hold on to every fleeting moment, although you should enjoy moments that we have together. But these moments are not going to end. There's going to be everlasting moments, everlasting eternal life. And when you know that and you have that perspective, guess what? You can serve and you can lay down your life and you can do things in this life, hard things that nobody else can do because you have a hope that transcends even the grave. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me. And where I am, that's where my servant's going to be. And if anyone serves me, the Father is going to honor him. The things that God asks of us, the Father is going to honor you. When you make those sacrifices, when you serve, this hope is not going to be hollow and empty. God is going to glorify himself and fulfill what he says he's going to do. So Jesus says, what do you you think I should say here? Should I say, Father, save me from this dying and being cast down and, like, save me from that? Like, don't let it happen. But I've come, and I've come to this very hour. Because I want the Father to glorify his name. I want the Father to show you hope. I want him to show you, not just in Lazarus, but in me, but ultimately in you, what his power and glory can achieve. It's a real hope. It's not just a spiritualized hope. A bodily, tangible, physical resurrection that you begin serving me now, but you serve me in all eternity. You'll always be with me, Jesus says, in life, in death, after death, in eternity. It's a real hope. So when I was reading this, I thought, you know, a lot of preaching consists of, like, what can God save me from? Like, all the negative things. Uh, God, like, spare me 
from any kind of suffering. Spare me from hardship. Spare me from, you know, fill in the blank. But here Jesus seems to be saying something different. He's saying, you know, should I be praying, God, save me from this hour? No. God, save me through what's about to happen. Glorify yourself through what's about to happen. Uh, Save me through this death, through this cross, through this burial, through this being cast down and dying. and Like, save me through all this. Glorify yourself by showing your power of what you can do through things. Jesus is going to take the easy bypass route. He's going to go through stuff. And through that, he's going to show that this hope is substantive. Father, glorify your name. John 12, 28. Then a voice came from heaven. And God says, I have glorified my name. And I am going to glorify it again. What I'm about to do, I'm going to glorify it again. And the crowd, they heard something. Some thought it was thunder. And others said, you know, an angel's just spoken to Jesus. And Jesus interprets the moment. He says, the voice that you just heard, it came not for me. It came for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. But as for me, when I'm lifted up from this earth, I'm going to draw all people to myself. If you think there's a frenzy of faith now, wait till I'm raised from the grave. It's going to send shockwaves to the end of the earth. I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate the death, the kind of death that he was about to die. He's really going to die. His burial, his time is announced, right? The crowd said, we've heard that in the law that the Messiah is going to come and he'll be here forever. So why are you telling us that the Son of Man has to be lifted up? They knew exactly that he was going to die on a cross. Like, why are you saying he has to die if he's going to remain forever? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus said, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. See, that's the reality is people don't know what's on the other side of death. There's people that are willing to gamble and they think that there surely is something better, but they don't know. They're walking in darkness. And the one who walks in darkness, they don't know where they're going. But while you have the light, see, Jesus is going to demonstrate what's on the other side of death and it's hope. And while you have the light, believe in the light and become children of the light. That's what this is about. About a firestorm of hope being unleashed. Now a little later, Jesus cries out. He says, the one who believes him, he's crying out because he's getting more concerned. His Time on earth is drawing near. And this message has to be cemented in people's minds. He cries out, the one who believes in me isn't just believing in me. He's believing in the Father who sent me. And the one who sees me doesn't just see me. He sees the Father who sent me. I've come as a light in the world so that whoever believes in me would not remain in darkness If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I don't judge them because I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. The person who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings, they already have this as their judge. The words that I've spoken will judge that person. I've not spoken on my own. 
I've spoken what the Father who sent me has given me to say. I've said everything he's commanded me to say. And I know that this command for you means eternal life. I've held out to you real hope. Will you embrace it? So the things I speak, I'm speaking exactly as the Father told me. I want to go back to the Hulu documentary, this idea, you know, the Jesus music. You know, I was contemplating how amazing it is, the power of music to move people. Uh, the power of music to move millions and millions of people. And I thought, you know, if, if music has that power, then how much more are the very words that Jesus is speaking right here? The pure, unadulterated words of Jesus. How much more powerful should those words be to move us? This Easter, you're being asked to move off the fence toward hope. Away from kind of this populist, generic, religious, Christian, like to really tangibly put your hope in Jesus in the face of death. To invite Jesus to do for you what he did for Lazarus, what he did for us, and what he promises to do for us. To be moved. This Easter, like those Greeks, maybe for the first time in your life, maybe you need to come before Jesus and just say, we want to see Jesus. Uh, like the crowds, you know, undecided, like Jesus, you know, they're fans. But to come to a place where you follow Jesus and serve him and walk and keep his words. To get off the fence and move toward a place of commitment. When you look upon God's one and only son Jesus as one not just sent from the father, sent not just to die and to take away the sins of the world, but this one sent to rise and to bring true hope of eternal life to all who would believe. Do you see Jesus, the forgiveness of sin, but also the freedom from death and bondage, the hope of everlasting life? We know where we're going. We know where we're going. Would you look upon Jesus and believe? Will you trust him who declared but also demonstrated on the resurrection and the life? He didn't just say it. He showed it. On this Easter, we say not only is he risen, we say he is risen indeed. He's risen truly. I can stake my life on this Easter happening. And trust him forever. Invitation of faith is held out to us in our worship. I want to mention next week we're going to start a new series. We're going to take a break from the Gospel of John. And we're doing a series that we're calling Reset. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to reset your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. How do we take this relationship with Jesus and let it be transformative in our approach to God? We're going to talk about how we reset our relationship with ourselves. You may find that darkness has crept into your life and that there's a lot of struggle and inner turmoil. Maybe you don't have peace. Maybe you're wrestling with demons and wrestling with other, like maybe your outer life hasn't reflected the kind of fruit that you feel that it should reflect. How do we heal, find healing in ourselves? By God's Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit helps us to reset our relationship with ourselves. We're going to talk about relationships in general with our family, our marriages. We're going to talk about a relationship with the church and God's vision for these relationships and how he wants to bring us together and reset our relationships 
with love and forgiveness and, and truly make us a family and build us into his body. We're going to talk about how God resets our relationship with the world, that our world is filled with darkness and God has intended that we enter our world with a capital P purpose and that great things happen through the church and the world. And we're going to talk about resetting our relationship with the world with God's purpose. So it's going to be a great series and we want to invite you back uh, to continue this conversation of faith. Let's pray. Uh, dear Father, we just come to you now. And we ask that you would submit this hope in our minds so clearly this Easter Sunday. May we realize that you're not just risen, but you're risen indeed. And that everything hinges on accepting that message, that truth of the gospel of hope. Stir us with this hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.